Business schools are ideally placed to be the nexus between government, business and civil society in shaping a collective response to our most critical challenges. This November 15th through 17th, join the Global Business School Network for GBSN Beyond, virtual conference reimagined. With the focal themes of humanitarian logistics, climate change, healthcare and human rights, GBSN Beyond will bring together members of academia, business, government and civil society to collectively discuss challenges and develop solutions. Keynote speakers include former Malawian President Dr. Joyce Banda, Michael Arena, Head of Global Talent for Amazon Web Services, Yulia Olofsson, Head of Human and Child Rights at the Inca Group, the holding company of IKEA, and Carl Manlin, Vice President of Social Impact for Visa, to name just a few. Claim your virtual seat and register today at gbsn.org slash beyond. Welcome to the Global Business School Network podcast. I'm Rob Vember. In this episode, we share insights into collaborations for healthcare leadership during the COVID-19 pandemic. As part of the Race to Imagine series, sponsored by GBSN member Universidad de los Andes School of Management in Colombia, we partnered with fellow network members Miami Herbert Business School in Florida to facilitate the exchange of impact stories from different perspectives, those of students, faculty and leaders from different institutions, governments and civil society professionals to share their experience within their local community that addressed challenges related to healthcare, especially in the context of pandemic responses. We'll be lucky to hear from not one, but two former U.S. Secretaries of Health and Human Services. But first, we hear from Dr. Chad A. Perlin, President of Nicholas Children's Pediatric Specialists, the physician-led group practice of Nicholas Children's Health System. In this role, Dr. Perlin provides leadership related to the development of the vision and strategic growth of the health system's more than 250 employed physicians, 24 pediatric speciality practices and outpatient care centers. He is also a practicing pediatric plastic and craniofacial surgeon. Here, Dr. Perlin is, however, wearing his student hat as he is currently completing the Executive MBA in Health Management and Policy from Miami Herbert Business School. It's really a privilege to be here today, and thank you so much for inviting me and Professor Mortensen for inviting me. You know, it's interesting for me speaking in this role, and I'm honored, truly honored, actually, to be speaking in the role of the student perspective today, despite the the kind accolades you gave in the introduction. I love the expression, once you start studying healthcare, you can never finish it. And I think that's so true. I've gone through my, my MD studies and understood healthcare that way. I went back later in life and did a PhD and understood healthcare uh, from a research perspective. And now one of the greatest aspects of, of my education uh, has been the last two years, now understanding healthcare and healthcare leadership from the business perspective uh, at UM School. So it's a privilege to be here. Professor Mortensen asked me to speak a little bit about leadership during crisis in healthcare. And this is a subject that I've now had two opportunities to really participate in. The first came during the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. That was my first real exposure to a true acute crisis moment. 
I saw on TV what had happened that, that afternoon. Miami is so close to Haiti. And within 48 hours, we organized one of the largest efforts of pediatric surgeons and the first team of pediatric surgeons to be, to be on the island helping. And I learned a tremendous amount from that, which would help me later during the COVID crisis. And I think the biggest lesson that I really learned from there was the expression, the enemy of good is better. And it took me a long time to understand that. But the example that I give is during these very intense moments, you have to be confident in your decision-making, but you have to balance what we have versus what we need versus what we're trying to achieve. And an example there was we had an airplane that was ready to go full of equipment, full of personnel, and we realized we were missing certain key things. And there was a moment of decision, do we stall the flight, try to get back to the hospital, get these things, or do we go? We went. Had we not gone, we would have missed our window, our plane wouldn't have been able to get into the island for two more days, and hundreds of people may have perished. So the enemy of good is better. That's different when, when people like Alex Azar speaks later, about warp speed and the absolute need for perfection. But during this case, we had to get going. And the same really came true to the COVID experience. I think in terms of business school, one of the most amazing coincidences that I don't think I, I could ever have imagined was at University of Miami in the executive healthcare program, one of the very first exercises that they have the class do. And I think it's one of these things, it's a bit of an icebreaker, it gives the professors a chance to sort of sort out the class and, and get a feel for the students, was we watched the movie Contagion, which of course is about a virus taking across uh, over the world. And then the exercise was we were divided into groups and said, okay, you have 24 hours to get your hospital ready for this massive pandemic that is taking over the world. That was the first week of January. Most people across the world had not even heard of COVID yet. And again, this was a total coincidence. So this is how I start my business school experience at UM. The first real moment that I remember about the COVID crisis was actually January 25th. I had become well aware at this point of the virus and what was happening and decided to meet with our head of supply chain. And this I think is another important role. No one asked me to do that. I really just felt it was important to check. I didn't check with our CEO of the system. I didn't check with uh, the board of directors. I just called our supply chain director and asked, what's our stocks? What's our supply? What's our system? Are you aware of this? That phone call actually put us in a tremendous position because we were about a week ahead of many of the other uh, local hospitals in being able to try to get PPE. As the crisis came and really started, and now we're into about mid-March when the world started to shut down and we, we had to close surgeries here at the Children's Hospital, I remember giving a speech to our staff, explaining to them that we didn't have PPE. What we had gotten in from that lead at the time were orders placed, but we really didn't have PPE in the beginning. And having to tell the staff that we were facing this virus without having enough, or at that time, did we have the right protection? 
We didn't know if we were going to be wearing full body suits or just N95s or masks. That was one of the most emotional moments of my career. And we talked about that. We all took an oath. We took an oath to serve the community, to serve our patients, and we would figure things out. After that meeting, we really started to get to work on trying to procure PPE. And one of the things that I realized early on was we could not do this alone. And that the need for collaboration across the healthcare systems was so absolutely important. There was PPE offers, we were inundated with it. But the problem was none of us knew what was real, what was counterfeit, counterfeit FDA certificates, masks would come and, and you'd open a box and they would be rotten or discarded from things. So how do we together help each other as a healthcare community? And this was another example of the point I made before of just acting. The enemy of good is better. We, I knew we had to do something. And so what I did was I started a consortium of all of the healthcare systems in South Florida. What I chose to do at that time, and at that time I wasn't president of the physician group, what I chose to do was not again go to the CEO and say, you know, we should do this, this is an idea, let's get everyone together. I just did it and I did it at the level of the supply chain managers. And I got all of their emails, I begged, borrowed or stole them from all the resources available and I put this group together. When you read the paper, today about the healthcare consortium that was started in South Florida, you'll read that this was, was put together by the CEOs. That is perfect. And that's how the world really functions. We know that. But the truth is, is that it really happened because of the collective leadership of the folks behind the scenes who recognized the need for communication. And, you know, in business school, we talk about competitive advantage. We spent so much time competing with these hospitals that we never spoke. We never had collective forums together. And so putting this together in a way that let us vet PPE, collectively buy PPE, and most importantly, share things when needed, really became a critical to our success and at times, frankly, life-saving for people. What was really amazing was seeing the results of how a little bit of collaboration can turn into things so much broader and so much more fruitful and meaningful for a, for a community. The collaborative efforts that developed throughout the last 18 months with COVID across systems that used to compete has been game-changing. And we now have relationships and efforts and programs and are able to serve the community very different than we ever were before because we let our barriers down we let the ice melt and thaw between systems that, that previously viewed themselves as competitors. And because of COVID, we all now saw ourselves against the single, a single common goal, but that has now changed as we start to get back to normal and function again, but we think differently about how we interact as systems. So this has been an amazing experience. I thank everyone for being a part of this, all of the the leaders at the University of Miami and healthcare others across the community. And I'm happy to answer any questions about, uh, about our experience further. Thank you so much for giving me the time. Well, I guess just one question to, to wrap up your segment on your last point that you made in terms of how, you know, as we slowly, and that's also relative to, I guess, what part of the world you're in, move back to some form of normality or new normal or however we choose to frame it. What is the appetite to 
go back to the old way of working versus seeing the opportunities as you've just so brilliantly outlaid and figuring out how we make this work on a more sustained basis, collaborating with people who would otherwise have been seen as competitors? I think it's a brilliant question. And that's going to be the challenge, I think, of the local leadership here in our community, but, but frankly, across the world, of how do we take the positive things that have came, came out of COVID and not let it get stale, right? Because the tendency will be to go back to competing against each other. That, that's human nature. That's the nature of business, of course. But yet, I think if we remember those, those points and we remember that the key, in my opinion, to all things in life is communication. And if we can keep these lines of communication open and be looking intentionally for reasons now to collaborate instead of waiting for them to come, that will be a game changer. We'll be right back. Do you want to join top students from across the globe and set yourself up for an extraordinary career in management? The American University in Cairo School of Business offers you the chance to join a triple crown accredited business school, get international course experience, interact with top global corporate partners, and be part of an intercultural study group. Head start your global career from the heart of Egypt. Join our SEMS one-year global master in international management while enjoying Cairo's vibrant life. The chance is now to pave your way to global excellence. Applications for fall 2022 are now open. Thought Capital. The world changed dramatically. Sustainable business practices. Phenomenally important with young people. Riding the Chinese tiger. Leadership goes beyond making a profit. Let's be forward thinking. We do need to accommodate difference. Hello, I'm Michael Pascoe. If we're ever to have equality. Welcome to Thought Capital, the podcast that delves into the wealth of ideas created by the experts at Monash Business School. To listen to the podcast, search for Monash Thought Capital on Spotify. And now, back to the conversation. Caroline Mortensen is an associate professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of Miami Business School and director of the Master in Health Administration program. Caroline is responsible for coordinating the following fascinating discussion about Operation Warp Speed, the public-private partnership initiated by the United States government to facilitate and accelerate the development, manufacturing and distribution of COVID-19 vaccines therapeutics, and diagnostics. It's truly an honor to introduce our faculty impact speakers, uh, Secretary Donna Shalala and Secretary Alex Azar. Uh, I'll start with just with a brief bio on, on Professor Shalala. So Donna Shalala has more than four decades of experience as an accomplished scholar, teacher, and administrator. She's one of the most honored academics of her generation and is currently trustee professor of political science and health policy here at the University of Miami. Don was one of the country's first Peace Corps volunteers and she served two years in Iran. I'm skipping over a lot that happened in between just for interest of time. Uh, she served as president of the University of Miami, which is an academic campus as well as a, a major health system from 2001 to 2015. During her tenure here, UM has solidified its position among the top United States research universities. More recently, Dr. Shlela served as president of the Clinton Foundation until 2017, and as a member of the US House of Representatives from Florida for one term 2018 to 2020. In 1993, President Clinton appointed her as U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services, where she served for eight years, 
the longest serving HHS secretary in, our, in the history of the United States. She's been described as one of the most successful government managers of modern time. In 2008, President Bush presented her with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian award. And in 2010, she received the Nelson Mandela Award for Health and Human Rights. So she clearly has an impressive background. Now, equally impressive is Secretary Azar. He did his undergraduate at Dartmouth College and a law degree from Yale University. After law school, he clerked for Associate Justice Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court of the United States. So one of the nice things we have at the university is, is this nice balance of um, the whole political spectrum. Secretary Azar served as the 24th Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services from 2018 to 2021 under the Trump administration, where he led over 85,000 employees with a budget of over $1.4 trillion, the largest budget of any cabinet department on earth. What he will speak about today is that he was the architect of Operation Warp Speed, delivering COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics in record time. Beyond his work on the vaccine, he also led a historic transformation of the healthcare system in the United States and oversaw much of HHS's response to the unprecedented COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, he drove government efforts to tackle the opioid crisis, increased private insurance options, very important work on price transparency and quality information in healthcare. He also expanded telehealth, gave patients ownership of their electronic health records and make sure those records are transportable and all sorts of other efforts on collaboration among healthcare providers. So Secretary Azar has also played some global roles, significant roles in the global health stage, leading many of the United States' global health security efforts. So I really wanna thank both of the secretaries for joining us today. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Mortensen. Uh, let me uh, introduce my colleague here, Secretary Alex Azar, um, served as secretary during the Trump administration he had previously served as general counsel and as deputy secretary in the Bush administration. So he's very knowledgeable about our Department of Health and Human Services, which has responsibility for most of the health care that our national government does. And that includes our uh, programs for the elderly and for the poor, as well as the great scientific agencies of NIH, FDA, and CDC, um, which are well known around the world. Secretary Azar was in particular responsible, personally responsible for the development of the vaccines that are now saving millions of lives around the world. And um, the, uh, the organization uh, that did it, the, the strategy is called Operation Warp Speed. And uh, let me start by asking, um, uh, the secretary to talk a little about how they could hit the ground running. And that involves, from my point of view, uh, decades of scientific leadership by both Republicans and Democrats investing um, in our scientific enterprises in the United States. Secretary Azar. Well, uh, thank you, Secretary Shalala and Professor Mortensen. Thank you for hosting this, this gathering. Um, Secretary Shalala, as you mentioned, as with all scientific endeavors, every incremental step stands on the shoulders of the previous step. So here, with regard to especially, let's talk in particular about the vaccine program. We could talk about therapeutics, uh, but let's first talk about vaccines. The, the vaccine program uh, that became most successful most quickly was the messenger RNA program. And that really built on work that our National Institutes of Health at NIH had been doing of a different delivery mechanism of how can you get a protein 
into the human body in a way that will be expressed by the cells of the human body to provoke the antibody, the immune reaction that you're looking for in a vaccine candidate. And so we had for at least a decade been working at NIH on messenger RNA as a vehicle, as what we thought could be a very efficient vehicle uh, for doing that in the context of, for instance, the Zika virus. Um, there also were companies looking at mRNA um, as, a, as a delivery candidate for, say, oncology products for cancer prevention. So what happened was within three days of our scientists getting access to the genomic sequence, the genetic sequence of the coronavirus in China, uh, our scientists at the NIH had actually developed a vaccine candidate that could be married with the messenger RNA. And what they did is because we had already been working with Moderna on messenger RNA vaccine candidates, I think it was Zika, we were able to work very quick, quickly with them to hand that off to them and work with them on developing a vaccine. And so within six weeks, we went into human trials. So March 16th, I believe it was, which was the fastest in the history of vaccines that a vaccine had ever gone into human clinical trials uh, because of that pre-existing collaborative work between NIH and Moderna. The Pfizer vaccine, of course, uses that same messenger RNA tactic and, the, and some of the same information developed at NIH in terms of the core of the vaccine. Uh, but even the other, the other vaccines, for instance, the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccines, those are based on a chimpanzee adenovirus vector for the chip, basically common cold vector for getting that, uh, getting the, the, the protein into the human body and causing replication. There, the J&J &J work, I had personally been involved with that because that was their vaccine candidate for Ebola, which we did clinical trials on in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, that was going on just the year before COVID. So all of these scientific developments stand on each other um, and, and build towards that broader scientific enterprise. But the key was the execution. That is, how do you take the science and turn it into a vaccine and get the production going? And uh, that involved creating a market and paying for that market. Yeah, absolutely. the market. Yeah, and, 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 and Secretary Shalala, that, that gets to a question, maybe even anticipating something you would get to. People say, well, warp speed worked so well. Why don't you just do the same thing in other underserved areas like, say, Alzheimer's? You put your finger exactly on the point. This was about execution. Compared to Alzheimer's, where we don't yet have fully validated targets, where we don't know every, we don't know every aspect of Alzheimer's, we don't know what to turn on or turn off to prevent or reverse Alzheimer's. What we knew with COVID was that this was, as we call it, a druggable virus. Why do we know that? because the human body could naturally recover from COVID without intervention, unlike say HIV AIDS, where the body has, is unable to mount on its own an effective defense to tackle it. Here, the human body could. So what we knew is if we could signal the body or fool the body into believing it had been infected with COVID when it was not, it could produce the antibodies and defense mechanisms that are vaccination. So that then becomes an issue of execution. And that's where having run the US operations of a leading pharmaceutical company, and as you mentioned, having been at HHS for all, six years before, I knew how to bring those tools together of the private sector and the government to really solve five business problems. The first is alignment on vision. And that was really about dreaming 
that we could have enough vaccine for all Americans by the beginning of 2021. Very few people thought that was possible. You know, with the media, the scientific experts, this had never been done in human history before. Um, but I, I, I used to say something that was, I guess, a bit of a takeoff on the famous ice hockey player, Wayne Gretzky. I would say, you fail to achieve 100% of the goals you do not set. You need to motivate a team. You have to have a compelling vision. You won't get there if you don't articulate that. Now, maybe that's not the most politically wise thing to do because you don't sometimes don't achieve those things and that could be regarded as failure. Here, fortunately, we essentially achieved that. The second big thing is personnel. People is policy. So we, we went to find the best people we could find on earth to tackle these challenges. So we had General Gus Perna, who was the head of US Army Material Command for logistics, operations, procurement, contracting, uh, the whole project management. We, we brought Monsef Slawian, who was the leading developer of vaccines in the modern history of the world. And we brought in Carlo Di Notari Stefani, who had run global manufacturing operations for one of the world's largest generic and biopharmaceutical companies to solve those problems. The third thing we did is we were able to take money off the table by funding all stages of development of the vaccine. Having been at a drug company, I knew the mentality of drug executives, which is what they call de-risking. You de-risk every stage of developing a drug. You test, check the data, and only then invest in the next stage. Test, check the data, and only then invest. And then at the end, only then once you know you have a drug, invest in how do you take from the very small production of clinical trial material to the large commercial scale manufacturing. So that third and fourth element, fund all development and fund right up front commercial scale manufacturing, because we had the unlimited financial resources of the US government, we could take all of that off the table. We funded the preparations for all stages of development. We began commercial scale manufacturing of vaccines that we didn't even know if would work so that we would have hundreds of millions of doses. And then the fifth is the point you made, which is we guaranteed a market because Zika, MERS, SARS, companies had invested millions in drugs and vaccines there. And those, those viruses had essentially tapered off. We guaranteed a market by making advanced purchase commitments say no, to say no matter what, the US government's gonna buy this product. Talk a little about manufacturing um, because there's a limited amount of manufacturing here in this country. It also means that these companies had to stop something else to manufacture at this scale, didn't it? Yeah, so, uh, so there, there is a tremendous amount of what we call small molecule manufacturing capacity around the world. That's the ability to make the pills, for instance. Um, right. that, that, there's a great deal of that. But this biologic and protein manufacturing is actually relatively limited. And what you have to do is go from say a 200 liter bioreactor in which you're cultivating proteins or biologics and growing them, uh, or a chemical synthesis process for generating, generating proteins um, uh, or the, the entities going into the mRNA and scale that from a 200 liter production size up to say 2000 liter bioreactors. That is not just a math problem. That cultivation of proteins is, it's, it's almost more art form than it is science um, because these are living organisms and they don't behave in ways that are always completely predictable. Mm -hmm. And so we even had people have to come out of retirement from ver for various pharmaceutical manufacturing entities um, to bring 
sometimes lost expertise on how do you create the feeder cell lines? How do you cultivate growth? How do you get enough replication? How do you filter and purify? You know, it, this is just one example of how crazy this, this and, and how really manufacturing was almost as central to the success of warp speed as anything else. Um, when you're pouring out the, 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 the proteins or the biologics that have been grown on the feeder cell lines and you run them through a filter, we found in one instance that if you pour it through at a certain rate, you could actually get um, an electrostatic film that clogs the filter and you could lose that entire lot of vaccine production. And you can't predict in advance that's going to happen. That's, it's trial and error in the manufacturing process, um, which is why we, we tried to be very conservative initially um, in planning out distribution because we always wanted to keep a safety reserve because especially in early stages of manufacturing, you don't. You could very easily have the failure of 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 lots, and with a two dose vaccine, we always wanted to make sure we could deliver to people a second dose. Excellent. Um, a final question, and it has to do with vaccine hesitancy, which we've run into here. Do you think the name Operation Warp Speed actually gave people the impression that uh, this was done very fast. It certainly was done very fast, but that the public actually misunderstood the relationship between building on the science and safety. You know, we were able to go so remarkably and historically quickly here because of those five elements, the five business problems that we tackled and solved, not mm -hmm. because we cut any corners on safety or proof of efficacy. Um, the name Operation Warp Speed, I'll tell you a little story. Originally, we were just calling it Manhattan Project 2 as a second style, bring the entire power of the U.S. government and private right. sector together to do something unheard of or like the Apollo Project. Um, the team actually came up with the name Operation Warp Speed. One of the uh, one of the key founders of Operation Warp Speed, Peter Marks, who runs the Biologic Center at FDA, is a Trekkie, a Star Trek person, and and he found the name Operation Warp Speed to be a, a compelling moniker. Um, I will confess, I probably wasn't as big a fan of that, in part because of the reasons that, that you you said, uh, Secretary Shalala. Um, but I also believe, as a leadership principle, you have to allow teams to be motivated motivated by their own scorecards, their own verbiage, their own terminology. And so if this got that team motivated to historic heights and lengths, then, um, then so be it. Um, but it did, it and uh, it and just frankly, the historic success we had meant we had to do a lot of convincing people. These were some of the largest vaccine trials ever in history, 30, 40,000 people in the clinical trials. And that's what allowed us actually to go so quickly because with so many doses and placebos out there, we could get more infections, which met our statistical significance thresholds faster than to say we only had 5,000 people vaccinated um, with placebo and active ingredient out there. That's one of the key things that allows us to go quickly. Commercial scale manufacturing beginning June of 2020, that's what allowed us to go so quickly. And the FDA held these vaccines to such a high and rigorous statistical efficacy and safety bar. Um, they really meet full standards. They're really all, the biggest difference between an emergency use and full approval, given how high FDA set the bar was, you need some extra manufacturing inspection validations 
that were part of the final approval. And you just need a little bit longer term safety data uh, collection in real world evidence as part of that. But um, this, these were as, as close to full on approvals of an emergency use authorization as I think you can get. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think that's as good an explanation of Operation Warp Speed and your incredible leadership, uh, I think, that we could have heard. With great thanks to the former Secretaries of Health and Human Services, Donna Shalala and Alex Azar, you can view the full recordings of all three Race to Imagine sessions sponsored by Uniandes at gbsn.org. We hope to see you at GBSN Beyond this November. Find out more via our social media channels and, of course, at gbsn.org beyond. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, take care.